That 50,000, that first season in pro ball, I was making $1,050 a month. Uh, so that first season in pro ball, I made $3,200 for the year. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we're talking to Simon Rosenblum Larson, a former right-hander at Harvard and in the Rays system and co-founder of More Than Baseball, a player-led support organization for minor leaguers. We talk about his time at Harvard, life pitching in the Ivy League, and the all-important breakdown between Boston winners and Wisconsin winners, where Simon's originally from. He goes into his time thus far in the minor leagues, experiences that helped him found More Than Baseball and work towards improving working conditions for minor leaguers. Good baseball stuff in here as well, how to pass the time in the bullpen, and things you can learn from rehabbing big leaguers. I really enjoyed having Simon on, and I'm sure we will be having a lot more from him in the years to come. Episodes are from Phenom to the Farm Drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. BA is providing great coverage of the Arizona Fall League, announcing organization all-stars. Lots of great stuff going on in BA, as always. With that, let's talk to Simon Rosenblum Larson. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom of the Farm, he was a 19th round pick of the Rays in the 2018 draft out of Harvard right-hander Simon Rosenblum Larson. Simon, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Of course, of course. Um, real quick, I saw you you post on your Instagram today, uh, so a, a couple of days prior when this is airing, uh, you, you're raising funds for for Florida for Storm Relief. Just wanted to shout that out. Is there where can people go? Because I don't think that's going to be over anytime soon. Yeah, so there's a number of Florida disaster relief uh, sites that I've posted on my Instagram, but um, you can go to volunteerflorida.org. Uh, that's the state uh, disaster relief fund uh, that I've been raising money for today. Um, Honestly, I have spent the last four years in and out of Port Charlotte, Florida um, with the Rays. That's where our spring training facility is. And that area got crushed uh, by Hurricane Ian. And so um, it's people that I know, people that I've interacted with, places that I love uh, that got hit really hard. And so it's a personal thing for me. But honestly, I mean, it's a devastating hurricane, uh, regardless if you don't know anybody there. So I would encourage everybody to head over there and, and chip in if you can. And we'll get a link uh, set up in the show notes. So uh, get in getting into your career, who you are, uh, when did you first realize that you had a future at the next level of baseball for you being college baseball? Honestly, uh, when I was drafted really was the time that I, I actually, it became real because, well, what about college? What about college? When, when, when did you realize that you, you were even going to be able to play in college? Yeah. So my, uh, I guess it would have been my junior senior year of high school. Um, I, I guess it was after my junior year of high school, I, was throwing a little harder. I had my first college coach come to a game, but up until that point, I'd been emailing coaches like videos of me throwing and nobody was interested. And so, um, I was kind of a late bloomer, uh, had a great summer after my junior year of high school, um, pitched really well for a travel team, uh, in Wisconsin. Um, and it helped that my grades were good. So I had, um, interest from coaches that really had a very small set of players they could recruit from. Uh, so You're every coach's lucky. dream. They don't have to use the baseball scholarship on you. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I ended up, yeah, I ended up committing to Harvard uh, in this fall of my senior year of high school. Um, and the great thing about Harvard is that they don't, they, they don't do athletic scholarships. They do need-based scholarships. So I was able to get a pretty hefty scholarship um, to go play there. Uh, it was competitive with other scholarship offers too. And, and really just the perfect place for me in terms of academics and baseball. I want to walk through that. 
I, I was um, I read an article on uh, I think your local paper, a Madison paper, about you chose Harvard over Brown, Davidson, Indiana, and Duke. Um, di- different mix there. You've got you've got some Ivies, Davidson, another uh, high academic school, lower baseball school, and then two two big conference schools. Um, how did you how did you factor in what really mattered to you as far as making that decision? Because you you gain some things going to the Ivy League, you lose some things not going to the ACC or the Big Ten. Yeah, I mean, I was there were a few things that were uh, that I, I had in mind in those decisions. One was academics. I mean, I felt like baseball was a pathway to a good education. Um, at that point, I you know had aspirations to play professionally, but didn't expect it. Um, and then, you know, other things like playing opportunities, uh, I was pretty confident I could see the field um, in my freshman year at Harvard, uh, wasn't as confident at, at bigger conference schools. Also the money, um, it was cheaper, ended up being cheaper at, at Harvard than the other options. And so um, it was, a, at the end of the day, a fairly easy decision, um, but obviously all the other schools were great opportunities and, and would have been, you know, awesome to play there as well. I just, you know, I, I made the right choice for me at the time. Question about your upbringing and how you've gotten into what you do now, which we'll get into kind of later in the pod. You have two very progressive parents who are lawyers, your dad being a labor lawyer. What early lessons about labor, the importance of the workforce, did you learn at the dinner table, like rooted in what you have become as far as a labor leader? I, I'm sure like, I, I kind of feel like there's only so much you can understand about labor in the workforce until you actually enter a workforce but what beliefs were instilled early that led you to evolve and then in, in how you go about your business now? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty simple. It's, it's justice and fairness. Um, there are two things that uh, were instilled in me at a young age. And I think actually kids understand them really well. Um, things like fairness, right? If you're being treated unfairly, every kid knows what it feels like to be treated unfairly. Um, you see that at a much larger scale in, in the economy. And that was something that uh, you know, my parents from a young age really emphasized is that, yeah, you know, things might look unfair for you when you don't get to play at, outside at recess for as long as you want to. But imagine it if it's your whole life. Imagine it if you're getting, you know, your wages garnished by an employer or if you're, you know, unable to bargain for better working conditions um, in your, you know, in your in your community or in your workplace. And so that was a big um, I, I wouldn't say those were like dinner table conversations, but they were lessons that I learned from parents. Um, and also, I will say that, like, the, in Wisconsin, I grew up in the Act 10 era in Wisconsin, where public sector bargaining rights were taken away from uh, employees by the governor uh, and by the, you know, the assembly in Wisconsin. And that was in 2011. And so that was right when I was starting to come become more politically conscious or more socially conscious. Uh, and it affected my teachers. And so we actually walked out of my middle school uh, as students in support of our teachers, um, their rights to bargain. And so I mean, I, I wouldn't say that like uh, these are things that like set my course necessarily, but there are things that certainly influence my decisions in the future and and sort of my beliefs uh, that I've taken with me as I've gotten older. So you enroll in Harvard in the fall of 2014. Can you describe for me that is there a difference between Boston cold and Wisconsin cold? Yeah, I actually got to Harvard in, in the fall of 2015. Um, 2015. But and so I actually missed and you played the, 16, 17, 18. OK, yeah. that's, that's um, a math thing. I didn't go to Harvard. All good. Uh, yeah. So I missed the big snowstorm uh, year in Boston. Um, I will say that like, I prefer Wisconsin winters to Boston winters. Boston winters are milder, but it rains all the time. At least in Wisconsin, you're getting snow, you're getting, uh, you know, the nice blizzards and the uh, the snow days and things like that. Boston, it's like rainy, cold, windy. 
yeah, I, I would take a Wisconsin winner over a Boston winner any day. What's the bigger adjustment, uh, the baseball or the classroom in terms of in terms of Ivy League, in terms of Harvard? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are two different kinds of adjustments. I went to a public school, uh, did not go to like a prep school or, you know, pre Ivy League school. So I came from a different background than a lot of my classmates. Um, that was a big adjustment, but I, I was taking classes and things I loved um, and things I was interested in. So it wasn't hard to like stay motivated and get excited about school. Um, and the baseball side of things, it was, I mean, it was a wake up call, honestly. Uh, Cause I, you know, I was throwing 85, 87 miles an hour and um, getting shelled my freshman year. So uh, I think both were adjustments in good ways. Uh, I, you know, I was able to be motivated by the, quote-unquote shortcomings, the failures that I experienced, um, especially early on in my college career, those really set the stage for success long-term. Walk me through how you shaped your delivery in college. In high school, it was more upright, your traditional straight-over-the-top guy. Um, by, I know, at least like your junior year, heading into your junior year, you've dropped down a little bit. I don't know if as severe as, as when you were in pro ball, but how how did you gradually kind of make that decision and what, what went into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I got absolutely rocked my freshman year of college. Um, I remember a start against Boston College. I gave up like nine runs in two and a third innings, and that ended my season. Uh, I had tendonitis after that on my shoulder, didn't pitch the rest of the year, and really spent that injury time uh, with our pitching coach at the time, Mike Sandler, who um, you know left after that year. But um, we talked about, he basically said, get down the mound as fast as you can. Quit standing so upright. Quit being so deliberate and slow with your delivery. Be athletic. Move quickly. And it wasn't intentional that my slot drops. Um, I threw from like a sidearm slot when I was 11 years old in little league. I was told by coaches it would hurt my arm. I moved my arm slot up. Luckily, I still threw hard, but uh, dropped my arm slot down um, after my, I guess it sort of dropped naturally as I I'd made mechanical changes after my freshman year. Um, went into summer ball that year, had a really fun summer uh, in the Cal Ripken League in, in DC. Um, and all of a sudden came back to school throwing like 89, 91 uh, from a lower slot. And my stuff was better. My command was better. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I ascended very quickly once I went to a more natural arm slot than rather than like, you know, keep the upright high three quarter slot that I developed in high school. Because it was a change that came came gradually or came naturally did you find that you didn't have the adjustment period that some like i've when i was in college i i dropped down like low low um we actually you're you're following up trevor hildenberger on this pod who also did a did a significant drop one of your your brothers in labor um did you find that you didn't have the same kind of struggles because it wasn't a conscious adjustment like learning how to you know i like i always had trouble with, with gloves with the glove side of the plate um you know getting over there and stuff did everything come natural as far as your command coming along your stuff coming along did you feel like you had to make any significant changes in in how you approached you know going about your repertoire yeah i mean i i think it was just more natural my command wasn't great before that so it's not like <laughs> it got worse. Uh, it didn't get better right away. Um, I, you know, I still you know, walked guys all through my career really. Um, and that's in part just because of the weird slot that I was throwing from, and you're not gonna be able to command perfectly to the glove side of the plate throwing from a low slot. But what I will say is like, I was able to make physical, not necessarily physical adjustments, but like visual adjustments and like approach adjustments that allowed me to make that allowed my body to sort of organize itself in those changes. And I was a starter at the time. So really, I mean, what we talked about at Harvard was 
I'm going to throw all of my pitches to the center of the plate. And if I'm not throwing to the center of the plate, I'm doing so with a very specific intent. But really, like the way my stuff has played all through my career is throw to the middle of the plate, look for contact, and more often than not, guys are going to swing this. So I guess it was just sort of a an approach adjustment where like you come into college thinking you have to be so fine with everything. You realize that hitters aren't that good. And then you make the adjustment and you throw to the middle of the play more. And that was pro ball too. Right. And I took that mentality into pro ball where you, where you pitch in the middle of the plate until you don't need to pitch in the middle of the plate anymore. And that has like throughout my entire career, really, it was, if I'm in the zone, I'm going to be effective. And at times I was not in the zone and, and times that's when I wasn't effective is when I was out of the zone. I want to ask about the kind of the Ivy league programs in general. So there's this, this thing, like we all grow up, if you're watching college baseball, a lot of the times, depending on where you live, you're usually watching the ACC, the big 12 or the sec. It's just, you have the, the general knowledge of those programs, the reputations, who they are, players who have played for them, that sort of thing. Everyone's aware of the Ivy league schools, but you don't really know a lot about them athletically aside from like the, the Harvard Yale football game and things like that. When you get into conference and you're you're figuring out like what are the kind of are there certain schools that have certain reputations like I remember I went to a division two school and so obviously no one's ever heard of any of the schools in that conference so you kind of learn who is who what they're all about are there certain schools that shape out a certain like, like what are your I guess feelings about some of the other programs as far as their reputations or what you would think like hey we're headed to play Columbia this weekend this is what that school is all about if that makes sense yeah I mean I will say like when I got there Columbia had been a dominant program for a couple of years um they had some great 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 players um and you know they had a good coaching staff they're one of their uh their pitching coach is actually now the twins pitching coach uh, Pete Mackey um he had recruited me at Columbia just like a brilliant guy um, and help turn that program into, you know, a real pitching powerhouse. Um, I mean, obviously there are good players from all the schools. I don't think there were any, like, uh, any, any schools that were going to be easy weekends. Right. I think we were all pretty evenly matched. Um, I will say like Dartmouth was usually pretty good every year. Uh, Princeton won the Ivy league my freshman year. Um, but we're not so good the rest of the years I was there. So there was a lot of parody in the conference. Penn always had some good, good athletes. Um, and Columbia was, was generally pretty good. Um, and at Harvard, we had been bad for a very long time. Um, by my junior year, we were, I mean, we were a really good team that couldn't hit. And then I leave and my, after what would have been my senior year, they win the conference, go to regionals. And as a team hit like 320 or something crazy where they'd hit like 210 the year before when I was there. Um, so it was sort of a, uh, you know, really the program turned around a lot in the, the four years I was there. Um, but I wouldn't say there's like, a, you know, a powerhouse Ivy League school every year. Although I think Harvard is becoming that. Um, they're getting incredible recruits and, you know, really, really uh, having more players drafted than any other school in the Ivy League by far. With how the Ivy League does its its postseason, actually kind of, I, I wasn't as familiar and I actually kind of like that it is just the, you know, you do the round robin in conference, you've got your final two as opposed to, you know, a conference tournament to get that. Essentially, usually Ivy League gets one bid. With that, is every does every conference series just feel like absolute do or die? Because in, in most conferences, at least like, hey, you just you just got to make the tournament. Like if you make the tournament, you have a shot with this. It's like if you don't finish top two, your season's over. Yeah, we never made it to the championship series when I was there. Um, and that was 
a huge blow. I mean, I, I would have killed the pitch in a, in an Ivy league championship series. And so every game you lose, right. It, it can be, you know, you played in my time there, we played double headers. And so we're playing a seven inning and a nine inning Saturday and Sunday. So we played four games a weekend and every single inning, like in those short games in particular, like every at bat, every pitch, every inning, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, I think that's the way baseball should be is every game, every time you step on the mound, regardless of the weekend, regardless of, you know, if it's a Saturday game, a Sunday game, if you're pitching the fourth game or the first game of a series, like they are really important games. Um, yeah. And like some of the end of the season series get crazy competitive. We would play Dartmouth. We played the same schedule every year. And so we played Dartmouth as the last weekend every year. And to go into that Dartmouth, Dartmouth weekend with a chance to, uh, to, you know, to clinch an Ivy league title or to clinch, uh, you know, birth into the championship series was really, really fun. And Dartmouth is always pretty competitive too. So we got to knock them out a couple of times as well, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. It seems like it's a very interesting way to go about it and make those regular season games, you know, count even more, especially when there's really no at large bid coming. Um, as far as, you know, Ivy league just has a reputation. Hey, you know, you, you're all smart. Everyone's going to start a fortune 500 or whatever, you know, the next Facebook, whatever it might be with when it comes to baseball or, or um how much i want to make it to pro ball was in that was in that clubhouse how much you know if you go to vanderbilt to play baseball you're you have a number one priority and then you have whatever else you think and you're going to do when you're out of out of baseball what is that culture like uh as far as around the draft you mentioned that more guys are getting drafted obviously you got selected a couple other guys did what is that what is that mentality is it still priority number one I mean, yeah, I think baseball players are baseball players. It doesn't matter what school you go to. And if you're competitive, you're going to want to get drafted. You're going to want to play at the highest level. So, uh, you know, maybe there's, you know, a closer set of top priorities. Um, obviously, I went into school not expecting to get drafted. But as it became a reality that I was getting scouted, I was getting looked at, I was playing well in, in competitive summer ball. Like, I, it, yeah, it became priority number one. I mean, it, it's like any other athlete. Um, and in the clubhouse, I mean, hell, there's my year we had seven, eight guys that had a shot at getting drafted if they played well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a hell of an environment uh, to compete in. Like our lifts were incredibly competitive. I would say that we would stack up in terms of training like any other team in the country. I mean, we worked our butts off uh, and very much had a culture of competitiveness and, and uh, sort of grit and grind. You mentioned competitive summer ball. Uh, we've never had a bad thing uttered about the Northwoods League on the show, and you have you had a hometown Northwoods League team. Was it a thrill to find it? Like, how, how did you navigate being able to play for the Mallards? Like, how did you make that happen? Yeah, so I actually I played for them uh, a little bit after my first year in college, just like a couple of appearances right at the end of the year. Their season was still going. My summer ball season was over. Uh, so I got a couple of innings with them that first year, and then uh, the next summer – they actually didn't offer me a full contract. They only offered me a temp contract, uh, which is a two week contract. Uh, went in there through like, you know, 17 straight shutout innings to start my season. And they're like, all right, you can stay. Uh, so ended up having a, a really fun summer there. Um, yeah, the Northwoods League is exactly like minor league baseball. Uh, it is exhausting. It's long. It's, you know, I mean, you don't get paid. So you actually pay the teams to go play there. Uh, so the finances are just like minor league baseball. Um, and yeah, the fans were unbelievable. I mean, I had such a good time playing in front of my hometown crowd. Um, I mean, 
I had a, one of the best summers of my career. Um, and it was competitive. Like, again, it was really good baseball all the time. Um, and I found out that summer that I pitch better against wood bats than I do against metal bats because the Northwoods League uses wood. And, you know, getting to break like two, three bats a game is so much more fun than getting jam shot hits with metal bats. So it's where the arm slot comes in too. You get that run and you start riding it on thumbs. Exactly. You have that good season in the Northwoods. You parlay that into a pretty good junior season at Harvard. Walk me through your draft experience. Cause when you're, you know, a later round guy, it's not always sure that it's coming. I was absolutely expecting it not to come. Um, I had signed with the Cape Cod league team. I was planning on going there. Um, it was actually, my dad was living in a, a, you know, a studio in New York city. And so I was sleeping on his floor that week because I wanted to be with him for the draft week in case something happened. Um, I had only gotten, I'd only talked to three teams before the draft and the Rays were not one of them. It was like the, at the time, the Indians, now the guardians, um, the Rockies and like, Oh, there's one more team in there. I don't remember, but, uh, I was fully expecting not to get picked up. Um, and especially not in the first half of the draft, I was kind of sitting there. Like I had, I had a number in mind, uh, you know, but really was uh, fully expecting to, go play in the Cape and and really prepare for my senior season. I told my coach, uh, if I get picked up and I get a fair offer on leaving, um, I want to go play. It's the right time for me, but didn't expect it. Uh, how so did I'm, you decide what a fair offer was at that? Like, how did you make that calculation of my senior year at Harvard versus heading to pro ball as a junior with a little bit of leverage? I mean, I told myself I was going, I was going to finish my degree no matter what. Uh, and so, and actually pro ball gives you a chance to get it paid for. Um, so I, I had, college scholarship money written into my contract. So I kind of knew like, I'm not giving up on college. I'm just delaying it a couple of years. And that's not a big deal to me. Um, I knew I was going to get it done no matter what. So um, I guess, I mean, I was sort of wrong to come up with my number. I've talked about this before. I came up with a number that was under the $125,000 slot number because uh, I didn't know how that system worked. Um, there was not a lot of information available to me just didn't know how it worked. Uh, and being a later round guy and not somebody who'd been in the process before, like I should have set my number at 125,000. I didn't, I set it at 85,000. Um, and so I probably lost out on $40,000 by doing that, uh, but was drafted, signed for 85 uh, with the Rays with uh, college scholarship money in there, which is a hell of a lot more than I would have gotten had I stayed my senior year. But um, I was, so I actually got the call. I was out to lunch with my aunt and uncle and my closest friend on the team or one of my closest friends on the team, Noah Zavalis, was picked uh, in the 18th round by the Mariners. And so I like was in the middle of sending him a text uh, saying congratulations when my phone rang. Uh, so all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, so I pick up the phone and, uh, you know, you've got the you know, folks on the line saying, congratulations, you're a Ray. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was like everybody else's draft experience. It was the best day of my life for sure. At that point, I mean, I went and sat, I was actually near central park. So I literally just went and sat on a rock in central park and was like, this is my life. Are you kidding me? That's a movie moment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you, you signed with the Rays. How much about pro ball did you, how much did you think you knew about life in the minor leagues? Like what things were going to be like? Uh, I will say like I had teammates drafted before me. I remember hearing stories about it. Uh, <laughs> I think as anybody in, in baseball, 
you sort of hear the mythology of the minor leagues and going into it, you sort of don't believe it, right? You kind of are like, well, it, you know, I went through college ball, right? I did the Northwoods League, right? Like, I know what it's going to be like when I get there. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to be like. Um, it was a shock to the system for sure. I mean, I tell the story all the time about my first night in pro ball. I was assigned by the team to a room. It was like a probably an eight by 12 room. Uh, and I was sharing it with another player. On the right side of the room is a twin bed. Uh, on the left side of the room is a half-sized twin bed cot. The player I was sharing a room with had been in the team the year before. So obviously he got the twin bed. So I'm 6'3", 200 pounds, sleeping on a half-sized cot, not even a twin-sized bed. My feet are hanging off the end, and I'm about probably about 6 to 10 inches away from my teammate's bed, who is he's sleeping right there. So I fall asleep, whatever. I've been through worse uh, I fall asleep and I wake up in the middle of the night with my cot collapsing on the floor. So my cot collapses in the middle of the night. I'm lying on the ground, like stunned, trying to figure out what happened. My roommate is looking at like, what the hell just happened? All of my stuff is still in a suitcase at the base of the bed. And I'm like, I I'm lying there in the middle of the night. Like, what did I get myself into? Like, what is this professional baseball thing? And is this at short season? Is this at Hudson Valley? Yeah. So was the expectation that you are going to be in this room, you, you didn't finish the season with Hudson, Hudson Valley, was the expectation they're putting you here that this is, congratulations, this is your home until early September? Yeah, no, that was, they moved us out of the hotel and into that room. Because um, this was like the first day of the season. So I'd gotten there like maybe a day before, spent like a very late night in a hotel room, go to the ballpark the next day, get assigned to this this place, and then I get there and that happens. And so about a week later, I actually was able to find another host family through an uncle who had like a friend who lived in the town down the road. Otherwise, I was in that room the rest of the summer. Right. I didn't have a choice on where I was going to be living. Uh, so like that was day one of pro ball, week one of pro ball, just figuring that out. And, and from there, like, I mean, that was my introduction to what life in, in the minor leagues is like. And I think it's a good representation of what my life in the minor leagues is like for a lot of guys or was like for a long time. Yeah. And just getting into present day really quick, this I, is it this year or last year was the first year that they are covering housing. This year was the first year with I understand that there are there are still hurdles with that players with families, things like that. Like how much of just single guys out of college or, or whatever, like how much of a difference does housing security make in being able to be a better baseball player? Just looking at it from the organizational point of view of, Hey, we want good baseball players. Yeah. I mean, it, you can't really measure it, right? You get good sleep. So I, I will, I should talk about the system before that, right? Players were responsible for their own housing, which oftentimes, unless the team had set up host families or something that meant you were scrambling to find an apartment. So you are a player going to an unfamiliar city and you have 48 hours to find an apartment that you're not renting for a year. You're getting a short-term lease, which is already hard to negotiate. And so most apartment complexes, first of all, have no interest in renting to you. So you're going to be paying a premium for your housing. You're going to be, you know, you have no idea what you're moving into. You don't get to look at apartments. You don't have time to do all that. So you're moving in blind to a place you're going to get overcharged for. And you're, you're making like, you know, 1500 bucks a month. So your rent is going to take up half your salary, maybe more. So to have, first of all, the security of housing that you know is going to be there for you, that is a huge stress reliever for ballplayers. Secondly, housing costs were like 50% of our paycheck. So you're talking about a massive, massive, massive like relief off players' shoulders to have housing provided for them. And to sort of know that the place is going to be there in the quality that you need it to be, 
which I will say for the most part, teams did do a good job of finding quality housing for ballplayers. That being said, there are still like in double A with the Marlins, for example, players were required to share bedrooms at 25 years old in twin beds. So it's not perfect. It's not, you know, gonna, it, it's not maximizing performance, maximizing performance would be making sure players have their own rooms, making sure players have, you know, air conditioning, which some apartments actually didn't have. There were some organizations that required players to move in and out of hotel rooms during the season. Uh, so they would take their bags to the hotel room for a week and then they'd go on a road trip. They'd have to bring all their bags back to the clubhouse every week. That's not conducive to success, but it's more conducive than making a player, you know, sleep on a cop that's going to collapse in the middle of the night or requiring players to pack seven in a two bedroom apartment because they can't afford anything else. So it's an increase in, in quality of life for ballplayers for sure. It's not fully solved, um, but I think it will be moving forward. I think teams and, uh, and, and the minor league union are going to be negotiating that uh, as part of the, the new CBA. And you mentioned you signed for 85,000, which is called a bonus. We all know is more of a, just a salary advance. Um, how much, how quickly did you have to dip into your bonus? Like how much did that be required living for you as opposed to just a, just a bonus? Yeah. So I should say first and foremost, like you don't get 85,000, uh, your bonus is taxed at a quite a high rate. So I actually walked away with about 52,000. Um, my, I signed in the state of New York, which was a mistake on my part. Uh, they didn't fly me down to Florida, but I paid New York state taxes on my bonus. I paid federal taxes on my bonus. So I walked away with a little over 50,000. That 50,000, that first season in pro ball, I was making $1,050 a month. Uh, so that first season in pro ball, I made $3,200 for the year. So pretty quickly, I had to dip into my bonus, right? I had to pay for housing in the off season. I had to, I mean, I worked a second job in the off season. So luckily I had a second source of income, but pretty quickly I'm dipping in for training expenses, uh, for food, for gas money. I mean, I remember when I drove, so I drove my car when I got called up from Hudson Valley to Bowling Green and I had to meet the team in Cleveland and then drive my car from Cleveland to Bowling Green. And I got reimbursed for that about six months after my drive, but that drive itself alone is going to cost me a hundred plus dollars in gas money plus a hotel. Um, so, I mean, even that alone is $200. I had to drive from Kentucky to Florida at the end of the season for instructs. That's another like couple hundred dollars in a drive. You know, I mean, you're talking about like I was making less than 1100 a month and I'm having to pay out of pocket for various things that you simply can't afford on a minor league salary. So without my bonus, I really don't know what I would have done in those situations because it took me a long time to get reimbursed. Also, so I have asthma and I take an inhaler every month uh, I, or every, every day for my asthma to control it. My inhaler, the minor league prescription drug plan requires that players pay out of pocket for the cost of their prescription drugs and mail in a reimbursement check. Those reimbursement checks don't show up until about six to eight months later. So every month I'm filing these, you know, I'm, I'm paying for my medication, which is $260 per month. I'm mailing in a reimbursement check or uh, the, the receipt for my reimbursement and getting a reimbursement check a few months later mailed to me. <laughs> so that reimbursement takes time. And that means I'm basically paying out of pocket for something and then having to wait and wait and wait for a reimbursement, which means I, I need some sort of like something to fall back on in order to pay for a medication that I need. So these are all like cell phone bill, insurance, my medications. Like these are things that I had to pay for during my career that I really couldn't afford on my minor league salary. And so I ended up dipping into things like my salary bonus, salary or my signing bonus to pay for. And players who don't have that, 
they're having to find other ways, their credit card debt, they're having to borrow money from family or friends, they're having to find other sources of income uh, in order to make ends meet and get the, the basic needs that they need to survive. With like, at, depending on the level, the rot, like 26, 28 guys in a roster at, at any given time or whatever it might be, how many of those guys do you think are living paycheck to paycheck, if not, if not deeper? It depends on the team, but I would say between 15 and 20. Um, your millionaires in baseball are few and far between. Um, most players are signing for very low bonuses. Players who are in the league for some period of time, um, they're usually their signing bonuses are pretty much gone. Uh, players from Latin America, those guys are in a particularly different situation because their agents take almost half of their signing bonus when they sign. So between 40 and 60% of their bonuses goes immediately to their agent. So a player who signs for $250,000 is really only signing for about 120,000. And then he's losing his money to taxes. So he's only signing for about 80,000, right? You're dealing with these situations for Latin American players where the signing bonus really doesn't mean a whole lot at all. So yeah, I mean, I would say a vast majority of minor league ball players living paycheck to paycheck and many aren't even able to live paycheck to paycheck because their expenses outweigh their pay. Well, while you're taking a financial hit off the field, on the field, your debut goes well, really well. You get you get actually noticed by BA as 10 late round, in an article about 10 late round players who had a good debut. The the thing, you, you have a strikeout rate over 14 per nine. You carried a high strikeout rate in college as well. Missing bats, it's like this, you know, you, you got to miss bats um, is, is the name of the game really, especially with pitching. How much is it your stuff just plays and how much of it is just your sequence, how you attack hitters? Like, do you, did you go in thinking about getting strikeouts? No, I mean, I never pitched to strikeouts in my career. I will say as a bullpen guy, you can pitch more to strikeouts than as a starter. Uh, as a starter, it's like, you're trying to keep your pitch count down and strikeouts elevate your pitch count, right? That's something they do uh, particularly because you need three pitches per at bat to get a strikeout at least. And so um, as a starter, I wasn't so focused on that, but as a reliever, I guess maybe I thought about it a little more. It was really learning how to pitch and the Rays system does an incredible job of teaching players what their stuff does. Well, um, I walked into pro ball, a starter who threw down on the zone early in counts and up in the zone late in counts um with the rays it was like your stuff plays well up in the zone row up in the zone you know pound fastballs you have no reason to like you know at, at that stage of my career i didn't have a great breaking ball it was fastball changeup. um the fastball played really well and they said throw it go for it um as i got older and sort of the hitters got better uh i wasn't getting as many chases above the zone i wasn't getting as many chases below the zone uh that first season it was like I could get a hitter to swing at anything if I got ahead in the count. Um, so I, I guess it was, I don't, I don't want to say it wasn't like my stuff just playing really well. Um, I think it was, but the Rays do teach you how to pitch um, and they teach you how to pitch in a very different way than I learned in college. They, they get lauded for that often. Um, with that, you get into, especially getting into pro ball. Um, you're, you're just a very outspoken, progressive guy. Baseball is a traditionally and still it leans very conservative. Um, I have, I'm sure our college group texts are a little different because my school is in West Texas. I have a group text where I am one of seven guys and I'm the only one who believes a lot of the things I believe is, is the clubhouse, especially, you know, you, you were into pro ball post 2016. 
is the clubhouse still the great unifier that it has always been? You, you know, you're playing with guys of different creeds, different beliefs, like even, even after that period, or did you notice differences than maybe how things used to be? No, I mean, we had, we had political differences constantly in my career. Um, and those political differences are, we all treat each other with respect. And I don't think that ever went away during my professional career. Um, there were times where I vehemently disagreed with teammates on certain things. There were times where I felt like teammates were uh, simply not seeing the same world I was seeing. Um, but at the end of the day, I think at every point, and you can, I mean, I think my teammates can attest to this. I tried to treat them with as much respect as I could. Um, they were all, you know, intelligent people that came from, you know, different backgrounds and had different beliefs. Um, and we had great conversations 99% of the time. And really, we talk about everything in the bullpen. I mean, you're sitting in the bullpen most of the season. You spend hours and hours and hours sitting out there. And so I had teammates who, you know, they would see something on the news and they'd want to talk about it. And that was something that <laughs> sometimes they got a little heated, right? I'm thinking about conversations around, uh, you know, there were uh, a number of, for example, like school shootings in my time in professional baseball. Uh, there were, you know, really tragic events. Um, happening all over the country. And my views on gun control might be different than those of my teammates or my views on, uh, you know, certain social issues might be different than my teammates. And so we were able to have those conversations. The beauty is that we can't go anywhere. We're in a bullpen together for the rest of the year. So we have to find a way to work things out. Um, and I think it taught me a lot uh, just as a human being about um, really finding ways to respect and, and value the views of people who you completely disagree with and really find common ground with them because at the end of the day, we were all in the same boat when it came to baseball and we all could kind of see eye to eye on that front. And so there was always a little common ground, no matter how much we disagreed. I guess on a lighter note, I would like to know what's, what's the best way to burn time in a bullpen? Cause you're not, you're not watching every single pitch in the game. You're not always talking about intense news events. What's the, what's the best way to make the time pass? Uh, you put a, you draw a target on the ground, somewhere in the bullpen, and you just put a cup in the middle and you spit sunflower seeds and try to get them into that cup. I guarantee you that's how we spent probably, I don't know, probably 150 to 200 hours a season doing something like that. Um, other things include, I mean, there were lots of productive things that we could do in the bullpen. Um, I remember we had a couple of big leaguers that came down and rehabbed with us when I was in Port Charlotte in 2019. Uh, and they would, they showed us how they track hitters in the big leagues. Right. If you're we don't get scouting reports in the Rays organization at the lower levels, just none. We don't know anything about the opposing hitters. Um, and so one of the things that we worked on in the bullpen that year was uh, kind of reading opposing players swings based on their approach and the approach the starter was taking. So I don't know. I remember. I mean, it was a little less exciting on that Port Charlotte team because our starting rotation was basically five big leaguers. Uh, it was like Shane McClanahan, Joe Ryan. Uh, Michael Plasmeyer is in the big leagues now. Tommy Romero was in the big leagues. Like that roster was stacked, but um, we would kind of keep an eye on like swing counts for opposing hitters, for example, um, or reading like if a guy's aggressive first pitch off speed, understanding that if he's aggressive first pitch off speed in the first inning, you better believe he's going to be aggressive first pitch off speed in the late innings if you've got a reliever out there with a good breaking ball or something like that. So you can be really productive in the bullpen too. And, and we spent a lot of time doing that as well as just kind of goofing around and, and, and talking smack. I was going to ask about the rehabbers because being, it, it's kind of the, uh, the thing, if you're playing in the Florida state league, it's where all the complexes are. So it is where a lot of those guys rehab, even the guys who aren't ready to play games yet are just around the complex. It's, 
it's one of those things that I find strangely charming, even though the concept of a rehab of rehab guy trying having to buy the spread because a lot of the other guys are too broke to eat well is like a you know an upsetting thing about the sport. Is that something that when there's a guy coming to rehab, does, is there an acknowledgement of like excitement of like, oh, we're we're eating good? Uh, I mean, there's no expectation that the guy will buy spread. Um, most do, uh, but I will say, like in the Rays org, generally we were fed well. Uh, it was not the case in other organizations. Again, the Rays tend to do things a little bit better than most organizations, and that's hence the reason why they do better developing ball players. Um, so we had generally pretty good food, but yeah, I mean. I remember there was a a day, for example, when I think Joey Wendell was rehabbing with us and he bought PF Chang's for the clubhouse, right? Like that's a great post game meal to walk into. You got sesame chicken and orange chicken sitting there instead of your, you know, your usual grilled chicken and green beans. Like it's a morale booster for sure. Um, When I was in South Bend, for example, uh, in 2018, you Darvish was rehabbing for the South Bend Cubs. Uh, We were playing there uh, when I was in Bowling Green and he actually bought both teams Ruth's Chris after the game. Uh, So we had, like like ribeye steaks cooked beautifully after the game. Um, and we didn't even know it was from him until a couple of days later. Uh, so there are things that big leaguers will do when they come rehab that are just, they're just good. Uh, and, and things like that, just, you know, big morale boosters and also show a little bit of humility from those guys. It's like, you know, I can just do a little to pave the road for the guys who come after me. I feel like ribeyes after a month of chicken fingers and PB and J's would be like in survivor where they give the people real food after two weeks and it just, it causes, causes some problems, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's good to know about certain guys. Um, okay. Obviously with this is something that, um, you're, you're still doing is, is I would argue more important than anything you did in the field. Walk me through the creation of more than baseball and walk me through how an idea becomes becomes tangible and becomes tangible pretty quickly yeah uh i mean the idea for more than baseball was not necessarily my own it was uh the brainchild of jeremy wolf and slade heathcott who after the save america's pastime act was passed in 2018 got together and said we got to do something about this their ideas were sort of nebulous they were like well what do we what do you do in minor league baseball to fix stuff um somehow i i got in touch with them i was connected to them at some point uh I believe, yeah, I guess I got connected to them through Garrett Brushhouse, who's the lawyer that was on the Senna versus uh, Major League Baseball case. I had reached out to him because I was curious about the lawsuit. Um, this is after my bed experience, my first <laughs> couple of weeks in pro ball. And I'm sort of sitting there thinking to myself, like, this can't be real. This can't be something that is sustainable. Something has to give. So I get in touch with Jeremy and Slade and we hash out over the course of the next couple of months the idea and the concept behind more than baseball, which is originally intended to just be sort of a fan driven donation network that was going to be able to provide some support systems to minor league ball players. Um, as we got to talking, it was more and more clear that like long-term something bigger needed to happen in the sport. Uh, that was not just fans helping players. It was systemic change. And so we designed more than baseball to be almost like a community of ballplayers and a community, a network of support for ballplayers. Um, in the labor movement, there are things called worker centers uh, that are not unions. They're not former labor, formal labor organizations, but they provide support systems to workers. So for example, the Domestic Workers Alliance is a good example of a, of a worker center. It's not a union per se, but it provides support systems and advocates on behalf of its workers and sort of seeks to improve working conditions for all involved. 
that was the concept of more than baseball at the outset, um, was to build a series of programs and a community around minor league baseball that brought players together and promoted change in the sport. Um, 2018, we're just barely like figuring out what we mean as an organization. 2019, we're starting to like put a little bit of roots in the ground and like build a player ambassador network and start getting some programs off the ground. Um, and then the pandemic hits. Uh, and so over the off season in 2020, we got our first donation, first major donation to provide, um, to build a network of ball players and begin providing program services to players. Um, we had had some crowdfunding at that point. So we had a little bit of money to, to start building up our programs and services to ballplayers. Um, and then the pandemic hits and many minor league ballplayers are not receiving paychecks and they're sent home immediately. Um, so if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, teams were not going to pay their ballplayers uh, when they canceled the minor league baseball season or postponed the minor league baseball season. And so players are, are sitting there like, I have no idea what to do. I can't get a job. Uh, I'm in lockdown. I can't train because the gyms are closed. I have no workout equipment. I have nowhere to, you know, I'm told to stay ready, but I'm in a place where it's, you know, still snowing because it's March in, you know, upstate New York or something. Um, and I have no, you know, I have no prospects of getting out of this. And so at that point we began raising money um, from major league players and from, you know, various other sources and launched our minor league player grant program. Um, and that grant program over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, provided over $1.3 million in direct aid to minor league baseball players. Uh, what that meant was we provided players money for groceries, money for rent, money for training equipment. Um, we gave them the support that nobody else was giving them during the pandemic. And we were able to do so on the backs of both major league ball players who donated uh, big sums of money, Daniel Murphy, Adam Wainwright, um, Max Scherzer, Sean Doolittle, ball players who were committed to you know, giving back to the future of the sport. The Major League Baseball Players Association Trust donated $500,000 to the grant program. Um, and yeah, I mean, we were able to provide 1,300 ballplayers with much needed support. Um, and we parlayed that as well into a network, right? That many ballplayers applying for the grant program, getting involved in our education program, our financial literacy program, our professional development program. Um, those ballplayers then became a core group of ballplayers that we then used uh, you know, to build a network in clubhouses. Um, so at that point we had boots on the ground all throughout minor league baseball. Um, and we began, I mean, really talking to ballplayers about what they needed, what they wanted, what changes they wanted to see in the sport. We ran player surveys in 2020 and 2021. The results of those surveys were published in our player issue report back in March. Uh, that recommended a series of changes in minor league baseball. And that became our platform for what became sort of a, um, a little more issue advocacy, I guess, as an organization. And we began advocating for a living wage for minor league ball players. Um, we were able to parlay these networks into sort of a grassroots movement that was eventually leveraged to form a union um, with the help of organizations like Advocates for Minor Leaguers and then MLBPA stepping in. Um, a union movement was able to emerge out of the sort of foundations, the sort of grassroots networks that have been built over the last four years. And um, really all credit to a lot of the player ambassadors that we worked with. We had a network of at one point about 120 minor league ball players across uh, across organizations that were coming to meetings every week that were talking about, I mean, serious labor issue conversations in the sport, how to talk about salary with your teammates, how to talk about fear and the, the kind of fear of union organizing with your teammates. Um, really serious conversations that ball players were able to have with their teammates that I think set the tone for what happened over the last couple of months in terms of building a 
So you, you mentioned the fear aspect. Um, when it is not uncommon in, uh, not a, it's actually very common in a labor fight, um, when a workforce is pushing for unionization or even just calling out unfair working conditions for large corporations, for employers to to pursue action against those employees or hold that against those employees. It's not as common as it can be for a an employee to be fired, to be let go if if they're rabble rousing, you, you could say. Um Slade, like you, you mentioned you you kind of co-founded this organization with Slade Heathcott, who I don't know if he was done playing at the time, but he he had he was a first round pick. He had made it to the big leagues. You were a relief pitcher in low A. Um, did fear had to at least come in the back of your mind? Will this be held against me? As you know, you still need approval from the organization. No matter, it's it's not uncommon for a guy to pitch lights out and just never get his shot. Did that come to your mind? Of I am putting my future as a professional baseball player at risk, and a conversation that you likely had to have with a thousand minor leaguers constantly. Um, Slade Heathcott actually lost his job because he advocated on behalf of minor league ball players. He stood up uh, when he was a member of the Oakland A's at the time um, and was told by his trainer, he said, you know, this is BS. What's going on with the Save America's Pastime Act? Like they are taking rights away from ballplayers. And he stood up at that point when he was in AAA with the A's and they said, you better be quiet. You're ruffling feathers in the front office. He said, no, I'm not going to be quiet. He was released the next day. Um, so he, I mean, a first rounder who had made it to the big leagues was not immune from that, right? Um yeah, I was, I, I very clearly understood the calculation there. Um, I will say that like, you know, at the outset, more than baseball was not created to rabble rouse, but at, at various times we did. And we really took seriously the idea that like change doesn't happen by just, you know, falling in line. Um, and in my own life, right. I was totally comfortable with the idea that if I was standing up for something I believed in uh, and I lost my job because of it, that's, that's something I can justify to myself till the day I die. Um, and frankly, I may have, right? I mean, I lost my job in June of this year. On April 23rd, I published an op- op-ed in the Washington Post calling for a living wage for minor league ballplayers. Six weeks later, I lost my job. So I, again, like my career, my statistics in minor league baseball are good. Um, I, you know, I had a rough season because of injuries in twenty nine or in, in 2021. Sometimes, you know, it just doesn't, things don't shake out your way. And, and for me, I may have, you know, added, added kerosene to the fire by being an advocate for minor league ball players. but frankly, I did the right thing. Um, I feel very, very comfortable with any of my decisions in that. And I think at the end of the day, like I'm going to be on the right side of history in the sport. So with just getting into the actual on-field thing, you have missed a season, you, and then you have, you have missed a season through injury with this is strictly really a development question as a as opposed to an off the field question with all the technology we have, like it, you know, now we have guys doing live ABs and we have all the tech and you can know, you know, you can head into spring training or whenever knowing exactly what your pitches are doing or where you're at. Um, and, and keeping in mind the entire lost 2020 season, most guys got no real game action for pitchers is, is missing out on, on actual game action. Is that a, is that really a, as big a detriment as you might think, or is it easily replaceable? Uh, for me, it was, I really felt, uh, missing 2020. Uh, I ended up getting back surgery in the fall of 2020. So coming into the 2021 season 
that back surgery like didn't go super well. So that's why I ended up missing part of the 2021 season. Um, it was like, I was healthy. I was not, I was healthy. I was not, I was healthy. I was not. And, um, frankly, like missing the game action in 2020 transformed my career because I, it, it almost felt like I'd never got back what I had going into the 2020 season. Right. I went into 2020 come training. off the fall league. Yeah. I felt great. I mean, I was in a really good position in my career. Um, I, I felt like I was ascending, um, 2020 hits. I don't, I mean, I faced high school hitters in 2020, right? I didn't have access to any professional hitters in Wisconsin in during the pandemic. Um, there were a couple of guys that took some live ABs, but they were nothing like game situations. Um, and so, it, yeah, I mean, I really, some pitchers are completely different. Some guys can thrive on a live BP environment and throwing indoors. I've always been a really like my game changes in competitive environments. Um, the the higher the stakes, I guess the higher, the better I feel in those situations. Um, and it felt like I was out of high stakes baseball for like two years. Um, I was never really able to find that groove again. Uh, I you know I found it at various times in spring training. I found it again in you know it, it, in rehab appearances and things like that. But uh, yeah, I never really got a chance to find it again. I had a month where I was pretty much injured in double A and then uh, never really got into to serious game action after that. So, so I know you, you were throwing and in, in shape this summer and working to get a job that obviously didn't, didn't come through. What are you hoping for regarding your playing career? Yeah. I mean, I'm open to uh, opportunities, but I will say that like, I'm not just going to jump in and take any opportunity that comes my way. Um, I feel like, you know, I have a lot to give on the baseball field and I think my career shows that um, I have stuff to get hitters out and I feel very confident I can get hitters out. And if a team wants to take a chance on me, I, you know, I don't think they'll regret it. That being said, um, obviously I have things that I care about off the field. Uh, and so if that was the end of my baseball career and, you know, no affiliated offers came calling after I was released by the race, uh, I feel pretty comfortable with my career as it stands right now too. So um, I'm going to be training. I'm going to continue to throw. Uh, I'm going to probably, you know, do some live ABs and things in the off season, uh, see if I can't get some teams interested in me, but yeah, I mean, I may have burned bridges, <laughs> uh, with my, with my words and with my actions. And if that's how it is, so be it. I hope, uh, I hope, you know, I moved the ball a little bit for the next generation of ballplayers. Well, what are your hopes for more than baseball in a unionized minor league world and with that how there's obviously there's never a perfect working environment in any workforce and the how far away are we from a it's conducive the word like a conducive minor league environment like a um a positive work experience in the minor leagues up and down yeah so uh speaking of more than baseball um more than baseball is continuing to provide support to ball players i mean conditions haven't improved yet right there's uh, a lot of work that needs to be done on the bargaining table and until that happens, right, more than baseball is going to be here for ballplayers uh, that need it. Moving forward, though, I think, you know, more than baseball, uh, it, it serves a role and hopefully will serve a role moving forward as a support system um, for ballplayers. But our sort of I mean, we don't need to do the whole unionization process now. We have that. And there's going to be serious improvements for ballplayers moving forward. And so, yeah, the organization, um, we're going to be in talks with with various players at the table about. Um, staying involved and continuing to support the efforts of the union, because again, we want to see working conditions improve as much as possible. And so, um, you know, we're fully behind all the work that they're going to do over the MLBPA. 
and uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to build a relationship with them that um, provides some stability for ball players and some stability for the organization um, moving forward. And in terms of the work environment, uh, we're a long way from that. I really, I mean, the amount of changes that are going to need to happen in a bargaining table, I mean, it's going to be massive. And I, I, I'm not convinced that MLB is going to come to the table ready to bargain fairly. Um, and players are going to need to be prepared for a very, very hard bargaining fight. Um, so what that means is, you know, you're going to have to bargain salaries, probably triple what they are right now. The average minor league ball player is making a little over $10,000 a year, maybe close to 12,000. So in order for ball players to be paid a living wage, uh, we set the number at $35,000 a year, right? Like that's what we believe at more than baseball is a living wage for ball players. Um, so in order to do that, right, you're going to have to triple salaries for the lowest levels in the minor leagues. Um, teams can afford that, right? It, it would cost teams about $5 million a year to uh, increase salaries to a living wage. That's the cost of a bad free agent outfielder. If you're a, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, baseball, major league baseball inclined person, um, and, and really, it's a small percentage of revenue that these teams are generating. It's a $10 billion industry. So you're talking about a tiny slice of the pie that would go into paying minor league players a living wage. But there's also significant changes that need to happen in things like the contract. So we found that you know, minor league ballplayers feel that the contract is a significant factor in inhibiting their development, but also their freedoms to improve and to, to do the best thing for their baseball career. Um, the minor league universal player contract, uniform player contract is a seven-year contract. Uh, that means that a person like me who signed at 21 is under contract till he's 28. And then that contract can then be extended through the, if I'm called up to the major leagues for another six years ish. So uh, teams can have you under contract for 13 years if they want to. Um, and that is again, a huge issue in terms of, you know, you see salary manipulation and, and contract manipulation happen with prospects. Um, if the minor league contract were shorter, teams would have an incentive to call players up earlier. Calling players up earlier means that players can get to free agency earlier and make, you know, a fair salary long-term. Um, so, you know, cutting years off the seven-year contract is imperative for, for a just workplace in minor league baseball. Um, other things include, you know, off-season support. Minor league players are paying on average $350 a month for off-season training expenses. Uh, they're not getting paid during that time. So, uh, I think something that, you know, should be on the bargaining table, if it's not higher salaries, it damn well better be reimbursements for training expenses in the offseason because players are training to be better at their jobs and teams should be supporting that. Um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things on the table. Nutrition is an issue in a lot of organizations. The housing policy needs to be fixed. Um, there's commercial licensing. Minor league players are not entitled to their to their image and likeness, even while college athletes are. Um that's a priority that needs to be fixed uh, in a source of income, likely for many ballplayers. Um, fairness and respect are two things that came up constantly in our conversations with ballplayers. Minor league guys don't feel like their organization respects them. Um, communication, teams are incentivized to lie to their ballplayers about where they stand in the organization to keep them loyal. Uh, so players are often misled about how likely they are to move up levels or get playing time or things like that. Uh, so they're not able to make, you know, logical and rational choices about their careers. So, I mean, the laundry list is almost endless. It's been like this for a very long time, and there's been no check on the power of Major League Baseball in the workplace. So the union has their work cut out for them, like I said. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I, I hope this all happens in one bargaining cycle. Um, likely it won't. And there will be, you know, continued fights over the next few years about uh, the future of the sport and, and the changes that are possible in Minor League Baseball. Yeah, it seems like a nice quick fix. Should be, uh, should be no problem. Um, I, I got a little rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. Great. Favorite minor league ballpark. 
uh, Dayton Dragons ballpark. No, that 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 one wins a lot. Uh, favorite Ivy League, not Harvard. Ivy League ballpark. Uh, Columbia. You got uh, 52 games, I believe, of the Wander Franco experience while you were in uh, high A. What is the what's just the best thing you've ever seen him do on a baseball field? Oh, he went a month without swinging and missing. Uh, and we didn't even really notice it until about two weeks in. Somebody was like, you know, he hasn't swung and missed in like two weeks. Right. And we kept watching and watching, and watching. The dude didn't swing and miss. And he hit like 370 that month with like four home runs. So he was doing everything right. Uh, I will also say I'll tell a quick story off the field. Um, I was going to a gas station <laughs> down the street from our ballpark and Wander pulls up in a Range Rover and uh, he was. uh, uh Oh, what was it? He was like, he was trying to swipe his card or tap his card and it wasn't really working. And he's turned out he was using his, he was, he was like uh, trying to tap his whole wallet instead of the card onto the <laughs> card reader. Anyway, so I spoke Spanish. I, I you know, I, I was one of the only white guys who spoke Spanish. And so we had this like hilarious conversation of him being 18 years old. Like he's, he just got his car from Miami that week uh, and was like just starting to drive it around the US and and figuring out the gas stations here. Anyway. Um, Wander figured it out very quickly and he's an incredibly intelligent guy who, uh, you know, I, yeah, I was really lucky to get a chance to share a field with him. Just a brilliant ball player and a, and a good guy. He seems to have figured out quite a bit quickly. Yes. Um, uh, best hitter you ever faced. Uh, I mean, I got to face, well, I, yeah, I mean, it's hard to not say Joey Bart in the fall league. Cause he hit a ball 113 miles an hour, like right by my head. Um, <laughs> But actually, I will say I'll go back to college with this one. Uh, David Villar, who just debuted for the Giants this year, um, he was a at USF. We played them, and I actually never faced him in the minor leagues. But uh, in a weekend against USF, he hit like five home runs and hit like eight hundred off us for a weekend. Um, and it's been fun watching him carry it over into, into professional baseball. I think he hit like twenty five or thirty home runs this year. Good. That's that's a, that's an interesting pick. Um, favorite piece of baseball pop culture. Uh, Ball four by Jim Bowden. I love that book. An all timer. That 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 adds up. Uh, best food spot in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, you got to go to Ian's Pizza if you're here and get the mac and cheese pizza. Um, it's like a Wisconsin special. Uh, otherwise, go get cheese curds at the Vintage. Okay. Uh, last one. Everyone gets this one. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Uh, yeah. I mean, a couple, but I think I'm I'm not going to tell the nightmare one. I'm going to tell the fun one. Um. We were on a bus trip to Mahoning Valley from Hudson Valley, which is, you know, about a nine hour drive. And we left, uh, like, you know, after a game. So it's the middle of the night. And um, <laughs> our hitting coach, uh, you know, they track open a couple of beers on the bus from time to time, as, as hitting coaches do. Uh, maybe he had one too many. I think he probably had just enough. Um, but he got on the mic and sang karaoke for about two hours while we were all, it was like three in the morning. We're all trying to sleep. And he's just on the mic, like crooning into the microphone about, you know, just bad love songs and, and all sorts of stuff. It was hilarious. The players were joining in at various times. And then all of us at some point wanted to go to sleep and he didn't stop singing. So that's uh, that's better than the AC shutting off or something like that. Yeah, I don't want to tell the nightmare stories. I've talked enough negative stuff on this on this podcast. It's uh, there's a lot of positives and minor league baseball is a hell of a time. So. Oh, don't worry, we've got plenty of stories in the hopper of the AC cutting out, bus breaking down, all that stuff. Uh, Simon, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Cheers. Thank you, Kyle. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to Simon Rosenblum Larson for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate and leave a review over an Apple podcast, and tune in in two weeks for our next episode. 
Thanks for listening.